You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please join me in reading uh, from Zechariah chapter 14. And in addition, please rise for the reading of God's word. The end of reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please state, uh, thanks be to God. So let's read Zechariah 14, and we'll read verses 6 through 9. On that day there should be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 37 through 44. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come now to learn from you, to listen to your word. And I pray, God, that as we do so, your spirit might be at work in us, um, awakening in us again a thirst, um, a, a recognition of our need, a recognition of our desperate need, a, a need for righteousness that is not our own, um, um, uh, the need for mercy that is not our own, a need for holiness. It is not our own, a need for wisdom, that is not our own, a, a need for a word, a law, a standard, that is not our own. And I pray, O oh God, that we would turn, we would turn away from ev- everything offering such things to us and turn instead to Jesus, that we would again thirst for him, long for him, find our life in him. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the season of Advent looks back at the first coming of Christ and in doing so anticipates the second coming of Christ. It is a season um, wherein the people of God every single year again and again and again um, cultivate a sense of longing, cultivate a sense of anticipation and hope and fear. 
You see, the season of Advent is about um, the darkness ultimately, ultimately being overcome by the light. I mean, it's about a season of anticipating the day when Christ, the one who reigns, uh, the one who bears all authority, the one who is the son of God returns, returns as king and judge of all the earth, of all the nations of the earth. This is what Advent is about. Um, it serves as a, a yearly reminder um, to set our minds particularly to meditating on, preparing our hearts for, um, building practices in our family and our church um, uh, around this anticipation, this hoping, this longing. In other words, one of the metaphors at the heart of what Advent is all about is thirsting. Have you ever been really thirsty. Like, I've just got to get some water thirsty. Like maybe you've been out hiking and you packed an excessively small water bottle. You decided to do a 14er. You get to the bottom and you lay on the ground and open the sieve on the giant water cooler, cutting a hole into it so it pours quickly. Not that I've ever done that. Like, have you ever um, felt such a desperation for something outside of yourself? The, the, the awareness that, that I can't save myself, I need something else. Have you ever longed for something in such a way that you groaned for it? And the World Cup is a periodic reminder um, that soccer has rioting, not, um, not on accident. It's by design. Watch a game for 90 minutes and you find yourself longing for a goal and then someone kicks it right over the top of the goal. Um, There is the heart of this season, um, a a mark of longing for something, desiring something, thirsting for something um, that we cannot make on our own. This is what Advent is about. And there's a tension here in this season. Um, and, and we tend to fall off one side or the other. It's the tension of, of one, we, we, we must recognize that God has done far more already in fulfilling his promises, in starting to set things to right, than most of us um, are willing to recognize, than most of us can recognize when we look out at the world or we look at our own lives. And yet Advent doesn't start from, from the bleakness of the dark. It, it, it begins um, to, to cultivate a longing for the coming day uh, by showing what God has already initiated, what God has already started to fulfill. Um, and so we must avoid the, the temptation to think um, that we still live in the bleak midwinter. We still live in the heart of darkness, that, that no light has broken in. We are a people who confess that Jesus Christ has lived, that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and that he reigns now. On the other side, we, we are tempted to believe that, that all the darkness is gone, that there's not more to anticipate, there's not more to hope for, to long for, to thirst after. And so Advent forces us into an uncomfortable tension, a tension that says God has done so much, and yet we hold up our cup, as the psalmist instructs us, and we ask for more. But we ask that God would grant more grace, more understanding, 
more clarity, more forgiveness, more transformation, more mercy. And so we come to today um, and we step into John chapter seven, right in the middle here of John, um, right at the end of the first third of this book. And we step into the feast days and it's really important as we um, as you look at the Gospel of John, um, to kind of keep this context uh, in the back of your mind as we look at particularly the, the Feast of Booze happening in John chapter 7. John has organized his Gospel um, uh, really around the establishment of a new day, the establishment of something brand new. I was considering, um, as I was getting ready to preach on John 7, I was considering all week, um, different things about the structure of the Gospel of John, certain things about the structure of the Gospel of John that are actually really, really important for us to understand when we read this story. So one of the dangers of stepping into a particular text right in the middle um, is you miss what came before and you miss what comes after, um, and therefore you might miss the whole point of what's going on in John 7. So I want to set it up for us um, here in the Gospel of John before we actually listen to um, Jesus and, and, and bear witness to what Jesus does in the temple. Um, the Gospel of John is organized um, really, really differently than all of the other synoptic Gospels. And it's, it's done so, um, it's organized around a couple of different things that it's important to keep in mind. Um, and I'll say actually three different things that it's important to keep in mind. First, um, John opens his Gospel with an account of creation. In other words, he wants us to know that the, the whole story of Jesus is a, a new recreation of the entire world. And so he begins where Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning. Um, and then he builds the whole of his gospel around seven days. Not, not seven 24-hour periods, um, but that kind of seven movements of creation culminating um, in the beginning of a new day at the very end of John's gospel something we often look at um, around Easter, when you have Jesus in the garden misidentified as a gardener. All of that's on purpose. Um, to, to, To announce to us, to show us that the meaning of Jesus' life, the meaning of his ministry, is the 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 creation of an entirely new humanity. God is recreating the world. And so John's gospel is organized um, around a seven-day creation, but it's also organized um, around a series of feast days. Um, and so uh, Jesus makes particular announcements, theologically important announcements about his identity, tying them to the feast days of Israel. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at today in the Feast of Booths. But one of the interesting Interesting things to, that I want us to keep our eye on is all of the gospel accounts tell us about Jesus cleansing the temple. I mean, you know the story. He marches into Jerusalem. He comes to the temple. He sees the, the, um, the, the money changers. He sees what's happened to this house of prayer. And he flips tables. And he makes a whip. Um, and he clears, clears the place out. Um, it's one of the most famous stories of Jesus. Um, All three synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place that story at the very end of Jesus' ministry. John puts it at the very beginning of his retelling of Jesus' ministry. It's it's important to ask the question, why? Why does John put it there? I think the synoptic gospels begin 
um, and then build kind of Jesus' climactic um, confrontation, his announcement of judgment on the temple and what God had done in the temple, the announcement that something was coming to replace it. I think John kind of has a a different way of telling the same story. He, He begins by announcing that something has come to replace this temple. Something has come to replace the, the, um, the place that all Judaism saw as their source, as the place where they would go to drink of the word of God, where they would go to see their sins forgiven. Um, it was the kind of the, of the cornerstone, the foundation um, of their entire relationship, their entire understanding of the promises of God, their relationship with God, um, the nature of their redemption and what it meant to belong to God. It was at the temple. Well, John um, takes that story of Jesus coming in conflict with everything the temple represented, and he places it at the very front of his story, of his telling of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then, after doing that, after leaving us with our, our uh, scratching our heads, um, you, you read the, the synoptic accounts of Jesus doing that, um, and, and all, um, all, all three synoptics give us kind of the same response from the disciples, like, what on earth is happening right now? Like, if, if you've pronounced judgment there, then, then where are we going to go? Like, what, where um, are we going to find forgiveness of sins? How, how, it was like an entire turning upside down of the world as they knew it. Um, an entire turning upside down um, of their religious framework for, for what it meant to be the people of God. Meant it, what it meant to walk with him and learn from him. And, and to learn his law and to walk in his ways. Um, and, and so in all the synoptics, you find Jesus um, bringing about this conflict, this confrontation, this announcement of judgment on the temple. And the disciples leave going like, but look at the buildings, Jesus. In John's gospel, um, I think you have the same reaction. And the entirety of the gospel of John um, is to announce how the temple is being replaced. How this source, this cornerstone, this foundation of all of your relationship with God, of where you're to find forgiveness of sins, of where you're to learn the law, of where to learn how to live in the light of God's grace and God's covenant mercy, um, how it's being replaced. And so Jesus comes and brings conflict at the front of the gospel of John. And then the rest of the gospel is Jesus making announcements and teaching about the him about himself and who he is and what his role is in the world in such a way that the disciples will go, oh, it's no longer there. It's now found in this person. Everything we looked for at the temple, everything the temple symbolized, it is now replaced by, is found in the person of Jesus. And there's, the, the, the Gospel of John is literally filled with pronouncements from Jesus, metaphors from Jesus, teachings from Jesus about his identity and how his people are to relate to him that are rooted in imagery and feast days and practices that, that, that previously were tied exclusively to the temple courts. In other words, Jesus comes and say, I am now the place where you find reconciliation with God. I am now the place where your sins are atoned for. I am now the place where you come to learn and have your life shaped by the law of God. Jesus comes and says, "Um, look away from what was old, what was merely a shadow, 
which finds its substance in me. And as we go to the Feast of Tabernacles here in John 7, that's exactly what Jesus is up to. And he does it with a particular festival, a particular feast day, high feast day, um, in the story of Israel. So at the beginning of chapter 7, we have Jesus at the Feast of Booze, at the Feast of Tabernacles, um, where, uh, and we have this interesting interaction at the beginning of, of chapter 7, um, as Jesus' brothers are saying, come on, you need to come on down to Jerusalem and make yourself known. Like, you don't keep your, your, who you are as a secret. We need you to get to Jerusalem so that your, all of your potential disciples can hear from you, um, and you can actually start to make a name for yourself. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going, and then he goes. Um, and he goes, and he, he goes at first in private. When he gets to Jerusalem, everybody's talking about Jesus. Um, and it's important to know during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, this, this wasn't like um, a small gathering. This would have been tens of thousands of people traveling from all over Judea, all over the Mediterranean, to, to come to Jerusalem and to celebrate this feast day. The uh, Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, is actually one of the most popular feast days in ancient Jerusalem, um, even more so than Passover. Um, uh, you see, the Feast of Booze was a little bit like a, a week-long party. Um, and so everyone wanted to be in Jerusalem for this thing. Um, and so um, when, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, as John gives us a picture of, of what's it like, I mean, you should imagine um, a large city packed to the gills with people, um, weird ta- tents um, on top of everybody's house or in front of their house, um, tents surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the center of all the festivities of those days is going on in the temple. And everyone is buzzing about Jesus. Some are saying he's the prophet. Some are saying, um, surely he's the Messiah. Some are saying, um, this guy needs to be thrown in jail. He's dangerous. Um, He's misleading the people. I mean, um, there is a buzz. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Everyone has heard about Jesus. And everybody's trying to figure out who this Jesus is. So during the Feast of Booze, um, all the people would gather in the evening once the sun had gone down in the temple courts. And every evening, there would be a quiet, quiet procession as the people gathered throughout the temple courts would watch as the priests would bring a bowl of water. Torches would be lit in the temple courts and the water would be poured over the top of the altar. Also at this time would be read Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 gives God's mandate, his command. This feast day would be celebrated. The feast of booze would be celebrated. Points forward to a day when all the nations would come and celebrate the day of booze with Israel. And it puts forward a promise that a day would come um, in which the waters of life would flow, um, not just into the people of God, not just at the temple, but from the temple to all the nations of the earth. Feast of Booze looked forward to the fulfillment of that day and it looked back on the days in which God himself had led Israel through the wilderness after bringing them out of Egypt, leading them as a pillar of fire um, and then also uh, by providing for them water, water that would be a source of life for them when they were in the desert um, coming and flowing from the rock, the rock that Moses struck. So you have... In John 7, Jerusalem, fairly large city. 
population was probably double what its normal population would be. And with so many people travel to Jerusalem for the feast day. Um, In the temple courts, um, you have um, some estimate around 100,000 people. Imagine that for a second. 100,000 people gathering night after night after night for this ceremony. And then on the very last night of the feast, the great day of the feast, um, the, the priests would carry a gigantic bowl, like a really big bowl of water. Uh, where they would carry this bowl silently through the crowds. There might be a, co- a choir in the corner readying itself to sing. They would pour the water out over the altar. And then the biggest party held all year would break out. Um, I like to imagine it. Um, there's actually... Uh, Historical record of there being acrobats in, in the temple courts. Um, so there we had a circus, like real circus, um, in the temple courts. Uh, trumpets would blast. Um, harps and well, harps for their day, which were equivalent to banjos, um, would begin to play. And singing would break out. And, and there would be a roar of 100,000 people in a party of feasting and celebrating and singing and dancing would go on all night. So then John tells us that here it is on the last day of the feast, the great day. Important little side note about John. John um, is not like Luke, He's not even like Matthew. Um, those authors, particularly Luke, like to tell us every single detail. They like to tell us what day things happen. They like to tell us the time of day that things happen. Um, John rarely tells us the day things happen or the time of day Things happened, and when he does, he has an ulterior motive. It's because it really, really matters theologically to understand the meaning of what's about to unfold. He'll tell you what day it's happening on, because for you to understand what's about to unfold, you've got to know what day this took place on. So John wants us to know it's the last day of the feast. It's the great day. So there in the temple. Packed to the gills, people pouring out of the entrances to the temple. There, in the silence, the night the priests would bring the water, big thing of water, pour over the altar in anticipation of the day in which living water would flow from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, bringing life to all the nations. A day that would be marked by all the nations coming to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. A day that would be marked by his name being worshipped and known and adored everywhere. In that moment, in the courts filled with upwards of 100,000 people, in the midst of silence, everyone anticipating the outpouring of water and the celebration to follow, Jesus stands up and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What is he like? The 
isn't sentimental kind of whispering and teaching over in the corner. Here is the most public of announcements at the most public of feast days as all the people have gathered to celebrate, to long for, to thirst for the day when God would establish his kingdom over all the nations of the earth, when God would bring his life to all the nations of the earth, when God would overcome all the darkness and establish his people among all the nations of the earth. And right there in the midst of the silence, Silence intended to, 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 to magnify the sense of longing, to magnify the sense of we wait for God to pour himself out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Before we consider the vast and sweeping meaning of that, Have you considered what he's like? Have you ever stopped to just marvel at this Jesus? Have you ever stopped to tremble before this Jesus? To feel again a sense of awe. To be stripped of, for many of us, decades of sentiment. To be stripped maybe of decades of cheesy TV shows and movies about what Jesus might have been like. To be stripped of our own imaginings. To be confronted with Jesus. What kind of person can stand up at that particular moment at the, with, with all of its meaning, with all of the anticipation, with all of the hunger, with all of the thirst. And please know in this day, um, most, not most, all historians say Israel is in a fever pitch longing and desperation as they live under the thumb of Rome, as they long for and and, and hope for and, and, um, and, and riots break out all the time in Israel um, at this particular moment, desperate that God would bring his life to them. Have you considered what kind of person could at this precise moment in a temple courts filled with people what kind of person can stand up and in that moment announce if you are thirsty come to me You must come to me and drink. I think for many of us, we don't think Jesus is real. (laughs) Think of him as a nice teacher, encoded teachings and stories. But we rarely consider the claim that Jesus actually did this. 
It's the equivalent of like standing up at, say, the inauguration. One of them where there was a lot of people. <laughs> standing up and in the moment of silence, right before um, the, the, the incoming president would take an oath of office, someone standing up in the middle of the crowd and screaming, if you would have a ruler, if you would have a king, if you would have a lord, you must come to me. That's what happens in this moment. So he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John, filling us in a bit to help us along, says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so let's look at the words of Jesus and consider what they mean. First he says, if anyone thirsts. Here is the foundation, the soil, out of which all true Christianity, all real Christian worship, all real Christian obedience, all real Christian living comes. Namely, lack. And this is, quite honestly, one of the greatest hindrances to people coming to faith in Jesus that there is. You see, the gospel does not begin with, you are doing great. Now, let's super empower your already great life with Jesus. Doesn't come to you, dads, and say, Dads, you're awesome. But now let me add to your awesome dadness Jesus. Doesn't come to you, wives, and say, Wives, you are doing superb. Now let's just add Jesus to your already superb and glorious and righteous nature. Now Christianity begins with you're dying. You have no water. It begins with Demand that you recognize that you're thirsty, that you don't have what you need, that you, in the words of a recent book published, the recognition that you are not enough. If you've come here today and maybe you're visiting, or maybe you have, you're curious about Christianity or someone tricked you into coming here today, 
Um, if they did, I'm sorry. Really sorry they tricked you. Um, whatever brought you here today, if you're, you're not a Christian, and, and there is a misnomer about the nature of Christianity. There, there is um, a strange belief, and I say strange because it's utterly foreign to everything in the Bible. Um, this strange belief about the nature of Christianity, that it is about um, you building up and getting your life together um, and then doing all the right things and therefore being acceptable before God. But, but here is the both glorious and terribly, ruinously humbling confession at the heart of Christianity. The only ones who can come to Jesus are those who are thirsty. Or those who recognize their lack. Those who are aware this morning that you need something that you do not possess. That you need a righteousness that is not your own. You need a wisdom that is not your own. You need an ethical standard that is not your own. You need an understanding of beauty and goodness and truth that is not your own. In other words, Christianity begins with, are you thirsty? And dare I say to you this morning, Christians, if you came here this morning... Not thirsty. You have a problem. If you came here believing that that you have come to contribute to the great wellspring of God's greatness, you are a fool. Like, how do you honor? A fountain of living waters. Imagine for ourselves, 14er, eight 14ers. Time that you choose to not be able to breathe, not have pain in your legs, and you're just thirsty the whole time. Let's imagine a 14er, and on that 14er, near the top, was a fountain. Just constantly poured forth. Water. How do you honor that fountain? How do you glorify it? Do you fill up your Nalgene at the bottom of the mountain and then climb the mountain and then announce fountain of living water? This is how much I love you. So I seek to glorify you, and you unscrew your Nalgene lid because you didn't drink it all the way up because you are a fool. You take your water and you pour it into the fountain. Is that how you honor Jesus? No. You honor Jesus. You honor a fountain. Of being so desperate for the life it gives, so desperate for the for the. The joy that it gives so desperate for the, the, the water that it provides. You go there to drink. You throw your face into the water. So this is where Christianity begins. And it is the heart 
of all of Christianity. It drives all of our faithfulness. It drives all of our fruitfulness. It drives all of our life. I'm a constant recognition that I am thirsty. I have need. I have need of mercy. I have need of righteousness. I have need of wisdom. I have need of, of, of an even aesthetic, the, the right aesthetic desires. I have need of, of ethical norms. I have need of a word and a promise given to me from outside of myself. So Jesus begins, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And here's the thing. You must come to him. There's so much in our world being spent to hide from people their own thirst. And barring that, there's so much in our world tempting, pulling, calling you to find that thirst once recognized, recognized, satiated in anything but Jesus. Find it satisfied in political engagement and social engagement to find it satisfied in particularly, maybe particular to our tribe, a particular kind of theological accuracy and nerdiness. Find it satisfied by emotional manipulation and emotional sentiment to tell you that if your thirst is to be satisfied, if your longing is to be satisfied, you must look within. You must discover yourself. You, you must empower yourself. You must love yourself. You must trust your own sentiments, your own emotions, your own longings, your own intellect, you know, your own evaluations and judgments of the world. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you're thirsty, find satisfaction wherever. No, he says, if you're thirsty, come to me. So the invitation is we must come to him. We should go to him. We can come to him. We must come to him. He doesn't just stop there. He says, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want us to get clear on what this drinking is. Um, It says here that his drinking... And the result of that will be living water flow out of our hearts. We'll get to the whole out of our hearts thing there. Um, but, but I want to talk for a moment about this, this notion of life, that we should come to Jesus and drink and there find life, that there is a pattern kind of unfolded throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Um, it's most, I think, humorously and tragically held up for us in Deuteronomy 26, 27 through 30. And it's really a pattern that kind of plays itself out um, in every single book of the Old Testament. If you're like in a seminary class and you're on the minor prophets um, and they tell you to outline all of the prophets, literally you can just do this outline every time. Um, there is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. Step one. Step two. You're going to choose the way that leads to death. Step three. God is going to come and rescue you and give you Life. It's every prophet. It's like every book. 
just matters kind of where you put the chapter breaks. But that's, that's the whole thing. And all of this in Deuteronomy is stemming from kind of an understanding of the law of God and the kind of life the law of God produces. Now, it's important that we don't limit the law of God merely to um, its moral aspects. It absolutely includes its moral aspects. Um, and so we have things like the Ten Commandments. We have the, um, the case law that builds on the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and that was a part of, a very central part of, but merely a part of God's law. Um, and, and it is to say um, that, that if you would choose life, if you would have life, you'll live under that moral code. But not just live under that moral code, you'd also live under um, the aspects of God's law, um, such as uh, the, the, the parts of God's law that taught the people of God how to worship in the presence of God, how to find forgiveness of sins in the presence of God, how to enjoy um, the, the goodness and the mercy and the beauty of the Lord. And so if you would have life, um, if you would have the life that God would, would have for you, that you would submit to not just kind of God's moral code, um, which would then produce um, not only um, individual people produce, um, pursuing goodness, um, it would also produce an entire society producing goodness, and ultimately an entire world producing goodness. Um, and you would also live under God's mercy, and God's beauty, and God's majesty, and God's goodness. And that would then, again, not just produce an individual who had you know, pristine aesthetic taste um, or a keen sense of God's mercy, but rather an entire society marked by beauty and goodness and mercy and forgiveness. Um, and, and so when God holds this out to them in Deuteronomy, he says, I set before you the way of life and the way of death, a living life and a living death. So choose death. And so what does it mean to drink of this life from Jesus, it is to come to Christ and to drink. To drink in such a way that you trust his judgments about the world and yourself more than your own. You trust his assessments of your life more than your own. Trust his promises Trust his warnings. You, you understand what you ought to like from him. Not, not just trusting in your own kind of base desires or kind of your relying upon your own sense that you have you know, a pretty good sense of taste about how the world ought to be or how your life ought to be or what your marriage should be like or what your, how you should go about raising your children. But, but instead, in utter reliance on him, you trust his words, his opinions, his judgments, his righteousness, his aesthetics, more than you trust your own thoughts, your own judgments, your own feelings, your own... Sentiment. This is the scandal of Jesus' own words and ministry, and it is the mark of everything Jesus did. One, he declares and he demonstrates again and again his own authority and his own goodness over against every other claim, every other standard of goodness and authority. He is the end of all our, yeah, but I thought this, or yeah, this, but this is what I was going through. You know, he becomes the standard. He is the end of all authority that we would give. And by the way, we give almost all authority to, yeah, but I feel like 
He is the end of all other bases for discerning what is good and wise and true and beautiful. He is the definer of the word love. He is the definer of the world good of, of the word good and beautiful. This is the scandal of Jesus in his day, and it is the scandal of Jesus in our own day. And almost everything in secular culture is bent to wage war on that claim. Two, he offers something absolutely and astoundingly good. I don't know all the places you go to seek and find satisfaction. All the things or thoughts or people or books or social movements or um, particular trends within society that you look to um, as your standard of goodness on which you find satisfaction and hope. But let me tell you this, Jesus is better His words are wiser. His mercy is precious beyond words. As Jeremiah says in the text we looked at last week, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fount of living waters, all over this Bible. They've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you're here today, the, the, the constant temptation, in fact, the encouragement, billions of dollars spent for this, is that you would forsake the goodness of the Lord, the sweetness of the fountain of his living water, to, to, to find for yourself other sources of life, other sources of goodness, other sources of ethical norms, other sources, other measurements of beauty and goodness and desirability. Um, and here is the promise. Jesus makes the, 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 the difficult claim for for us, that, that no, you must drink from me. But here's the promise, the goodness. He is sweet, merciful, and beautiful, good. And then finally, this is out of his heart. Those who drink from Jesus will flow rivers of living water. Transition from old covenant to new covenant was not a, a kind of complete abrogation of the law. So we don't have to think about the law anymore. I mean, you just have to believe in Jesus. No, it, it was a transformation of where the law sits. You see, in the old covenant, what we had was um, a, people, a people who would trust God, a people who would rely upon God, um, and then in that reliance upon God, all they were given was a word from outside of them, a standard. And in the new covenant, here's the beauty of what Jesus says. Um, if you come to him and drink, if you find your life in him, if you put all of your faith and your trust and your hope in him, you will 
love that which God loves, um, you will begin to hate that which God hates. Life, that kind of life will flow from, not, not sit outside of you merely as an external word, but an external word spoken by God and delivered to, to the heart by the Spirit such that you begin to love what God loves. You begin to delight in what God delights in. You begin to hate what God hates. You begin to, um, to think in the, the, wis- the categories of wisdom that God thinks in. You will not only love God, not only drink deeply from God, you'll become the kind of man and woman, the, the kind of mother or father, the kind of husband or wife or brother or sister or barista or banker um, who has so, so drunk from God, so continued to drink from Jesus um, that your whole life is transformed from the inside out. You'll no longer look at the law of God and scratch your head. you look at the law of God and marvel at God's wisdom and love it. You'll hear, hear words, difficult words in our culture that will come to you. And because of the Spirit, words, words that the Bible instructs us in, you will not hate, but you will embrace and love. And so this Advent, are you thirsty? Thirsty to drink from this Jesus, to find your life in this Jesus, to find your affections and your loves and your understanding of morality and your understanding of wisdom wisdom and your marriage and your um, child rearing and your vocational life in our city and your relationship to our neighbors utterly transformed and changed uh, by a, such a living and conscious dependence on the person of Jesus that he becomes the place you always go again and again and again and again to find your life. Are you thirsty? 